our study of the book of Jeremiah. Let me open our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we uh, see the rain outside, uh, we remember that uh, you are the one who showers your blessings upon the earth. You're the one who makes uh, the rain fall and use it to nourish the earth. Uh, truly, you are the sovereign God um, of all creation. And as we'll see today, you're the God not just of uh, your people Israel, but the God of all the earth. And uh, you uh, bring nations up and you pull nations down. Um, and uh, it's your power that's moving all human history um, to your perfect uh, consummation in the coming again of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, help us look for that coming and help us to, uh, this morning, um, be taught expectancy uh, as we study your word together. That as we see how you've dealt with nations in the past, uh, we are equipped to see your hand moving things all to their perfect end. Um, so we pray that you would uh, show us uh, yourself this morning, uh, show us uh, who you are and your power, um, show us uh, who you are and your um, good intentions um, towards humanity, intentions um, to, to bring judgment and to destroy, but also to bring salvation and to build up and to heal and restore. Uh, teach us now by the same spirit that spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. May that spirit uh, teach us uh, this morning as we study uh, the words of the prophet together. We ask this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 46. Um, and while you're turning there, let me just remind you a little bit where we are in the book. So today we're starting an entirely new section. Um, it's announced, uh, the, the verse 1 of chapter 46 basically covers um, what Jeremiah is going to be doing um, for the next several chapters. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. So the next um, uh, several chapters are going to focus on these nations. Now, just to remind you where we were, so last time um, and for the last several weeks, we've been in this section where Jeremiah's been describing the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem and then the circumstances by which uh, Jeremiah and the other remnant of Judah uh, went to Egypt. In chapter 45, uh, we saw this uh, um, presentation of an earlier prophecy concerning Baruch uh, served as a type of epilogue for that Egyptian cycle. Um, uh, Jeremiah presented an earlier personal prophecy in which God told Baruch that he will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places which you may go. And we uh, talked about how God um, reminded Baruch of that word um, as they found, he and Jeremiah found themselves uh, in Egypt. So he, God went with them wherever they went, even to Egypt. So now the book of Jeremiah turns our attention away from Judah to prophecies concerning the nations. And it, it follows, a, a, there's an order to it. So we start with Egypt and kind of follow that fertile crescent and we'll end with Babylon. So Egypt's on one one, the beginning end, and Babylon is on the uh, end end. So we start in the west, 
make our way east with various nations around uh, Judah uh, in between. So um, as we talked about at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah in his call, he was called to be a prophet to the nations, so not just a prophet to Judah. So we shouldn't be surprised that now um, we get this section uh, that focuses on these prophecies concerning the nations. Um, and again, this emphasizes, uh, as we'll talk um, some this morning, that uh, Yahweh is, is Lord, not just over Israel and Judah, but over all the peoples and nations of the world. Thus, God's messengers, his servants, the prophets, routinely have the task of announcing his message to the nations as lar at large, as well as to Israel and Judah. So uh, Isaiah has examples of this, Ezekiel, uh, Amos, you could think about Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum are all prophets who are focused um, on foreign nations. So today in chapter 46, we get two um, lengthy poems. Um, the first will deal with the defeat of the Egyptian uh, army at the Battle of Carchemish, and the second depicts the Egyptian terror at the approach of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and then we, it, in chapter 46, we'll see ends with a word uh, repeating something that Jeremiah had said concerning Judah back in chapter 30. So here now, um, the word of the Lord uh, from Jeremiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield, advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backwards. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is, who is this, rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses. Enrage, O chariots, let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated, and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates, Go up get to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame, and the earth is full of your cry, for warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Memphis and Toppenes, 
Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand, because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble, and they fell, and they said one to another, Arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth, because the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains, like Carmel by the sea, shall one come. Prepare yourselves, baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings, upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we speak of it together this morning. So as I said, um, verse 1 of chapter 46 provides the header for um, uh, the next several chapters, um, uh, beginning with the prophecies concerning the nation of Egypt and ending with prophecy of nations, uh, the nation of Babylon with other nations between. Um, in verse two, we get the introduction to this particular chapter, which is mostly focused on Egypt. About Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So um, in these, uh, as we think of these, um, this chapter, there are two long poems. The first one goes from verse 3 to verse 12, and then the second one goes from verse 14 to verse 24. So in this first poem, um, it, it, it says, as verse 2, it, it's focused on um, this battle at Carchemish uh, in which uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated uh, the Egyptians. So um, why start a prophecy concerning Egypt with a description of their defeat 
to the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish. And then my kind of related question, there's an undercurrent of um, mocking <laughs> in this poem. It, there's a lot of uh, irony, a lot of kind of, um, there, there's humor here, hopefully we'll, we'll see. It's not just um, prophesying about the Egyptians, it's actually, and to a degree, making fun of their aspirations. So in this first poem, yeah, what, what stood out to you about um, this poetic, prophetic description of the Battle of Carchemish and why the mocking tone? Yeah, so it, it's, he has employed poetry before, but as you say, it's always been in it's a personal context. Um, and again, Jeremiah is the most personal of the prophets. Um, and I think part of the change in tone is the fact that he isn't addressing his people, Judah, anymore. Um, I mean, he is. They're still the audience, and that's one of the things I want you to think. Why is it important for, for Judah to hear these prophecies concerning the nation? So they're still kind of the ultimate audience audience, but these prophecies don't concern them in the way that we've seen in the prior 45 chapters. Um, and, th and that's going to continue in the next several chapters, um, that he is, he's focused on um, peoples around Judah, peoples that interact with Judah, but not on Judah themselves. Um, so I think that's part of the reason for the kind of uh, change of tone, and you're, you're right, Dave, it, is, it, it does read very differently, um, uh, especially uh, these are two, like, really excellent poems, <laughs> just in general, like, uh, I don't know a lot about Hebrew poetry, so I'm relying on what other people have said, but they, they've got a really um, distinct structure to them, and the vocabulary, like, the first couple of verses are very, it's, it, he's employing, like, the commands that an army officer would use. And it's like he's taking all those commands and putting them into poetic form. Again, to kind of mock these Egyptians who before the battle are like, you know, get ready, rah, rah. It's like the locker room before a football game. <laughs> you know, stand firm, let's go. And then they get <laughs> crushed. <laughs> um, Cynthia, you had your hand up. Yeah, they're like fumbling against each other. Yeah, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Again, as we think about, all right, it's, it's prophesying judgment against Egypt, and there are reasons God is bringing judgment against Egypt, and we see some of those um, later on in the chapter. Their idolatry, um, we see their, um, there's a condemnation in the second poem of their excessive pride. 
Um, like they've really built themselves, actually it's in the first poem, this, their excessive pride. Uh, they've built themselves up. And you can see why Judah would turn to these, you know, big talkers. <laughs> um, you know, they've got all the, they've got all the stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's very specific, like, you know, uh, buckler and shield, harness the horses, mount, O horsemen, take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. So, you know, it, it's going through, like, again, an army preparing itself for battle, and it's very, um, like, they're, they're all, um, they're all infinitive uh, verbs, they're all commands, so, it, it, like, and it should be, think of like a commander shouting uh, orders. Prepare buckler and shield. Advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount, O horsemen. Take your stations. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. So it's coming out as commands. You, you know, and it creates this like pr um, impressive start to this, this battle with these uh, Egyptian um, officers as you say, um, naming all these things uh, that Israel and Judah have been putting their trust in. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, again, it's like, you know, I, I, was, I was a football manager in college, and I was a part of some very, very bad football teams. Um, <laughs> like, historically, historically bad teams. Um, but before the season started, like, there's always that optimism. This is going to be the year before that first game in the locker room. Yeah, yeah, let's go out and get them. Uh, like, one year we played SMU, which was coming off the death penalty, so they hadn't had a football team in years. We got beat by 40-something points. <laughs> like, how embarrassing is that? But, like, going into the game, like, there's all this bravado and, and confidence and, like, we're going to win, we're going to take it to them, and then disaster. Um, and that's the kind of picture uh, we're given here. It starts off like with this picture of, you know, all these soldiers, you know, shouting those orders, get ready for battle, we're going in there. And then God asks that question, what do I see? <laughs> I see a bunch of people running pell-mell in fright from each other. So again, as you kind of you know, like they're pumping themselves up, and God's describing what actually happens during the battle, which is they get, they're, they're fleeing pell-mell. Good. What else stands out to you about this first poem? So it starts off with those commands, and again, kind of like uh, the irony of they, they have all the stuff ready for battle, um, and yet the battle uh, is described as like a torrent going against them. Yeah, so on a human level, 
we can, like this is, I mean, just human world history, this is a major world historic moment. This is the moment Egypt uh, becomes a second rate power. Like they're crushed by the Babylonians. And it's the moment, as you say, Nebuchadnezzar comes to the fore. Like he defeats the Egyptians at Carchemish and then it, like right on the heel of the battle, his dad dies. So he becomes king. Like he, he wins this huge battle and then becomes king of Babylon. Like so those two things uh, happen so close together. Like, you know, it's, it's almost one moment in time. So from a, like you can, just from a human history, this is a major turning point. Things change. Like Babylonians in the ascendancy, Egypt's on the decline, um, and all the, the ramifications of that change. Power has, has shifted um, eastward, um, and Egypt is never going to be the same after this. But that's not <laughs> Jeremiah's concern. Like, so we could look at it in this moment, study the Battle of Carchemish and how important it was for ancient Near Eastern history. Jeremiah is interested in what God is doing in bringing about this world moment of history. He is bringing vengeance upon Egypt. Um, and lots of people like vengeance. He doesn't name specifically what Egypt's done that, that has incurred uh, God's wrath upon them. Some speculate um, Egypt had uh, killed King Josiah, who's referenced here, because um, it's his son. This is happening about four years after Josiah's death when the Egyptians, he fought the Egyptians in the battle at Megiddo. Um, and so, so maybe it's vengeance for, for them killing uh, Judah's good king. Um, but, it's, but God declares it a day of vengeance. It's God's day. Um, it's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about the rise of Babylonians. Because as we'll see, he's going to prophesy their downfall too. They're just a tool <laughs> that God is employing at this moment to punish Egypt. So he's, to punish Egypt, he's going to use Babylon. And then later on, he'll publish, use the, the, the Medes and Persians to punish the Babylonians. Um, so that's what God is doing to bring about his purpose by putting this nation to shame um, and, and showing that they think that they are this world-conquering power. Um, you know, verses, uh, uh, verse 8, uh, Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He says, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. No. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> uh, because God has decreed otherwise. Um, uh, it's the day of the Lord, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword will devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. So he's like... They think they're going forth like the Nile rising to, to overflow its banks and spread over the earth. And that's how Egypt imagines itself in their pride and in their ambition. And, and God's like, no, you're, you're actually a sacrifice <laughs> that I'm going to kill uh, uh, for, for my purposes. Um, so yeah, it's like they think they're they're, they're the ones, and, and God is about to show them, no, 
your sacrifice on your own altar of pride and ambition. Yeah, and, and we'll get to the, the second poem in a little bit and kind of work through some of those images. But yeah, there should be all kind there are all kinds of references there, both to what Egypt has, has done historically, um, and also like all these symbols of Egypt, like like a heifer. Like um, some translations actually like split to split one word for warrior if you split it in two it becomes uh, the name of a Egyptian god and bull. Um, so that god is a bull. So some people say, no, it's not warrior in the verse, it's the bull god. Um, and, and God is, again, showing how empty their gods are. But, but like, <laughs> um, I came across this stat. How many times do you think the word Egypt is mentioned in the Bible? Any guess? Hundreds? Come on, give me his exact number. Oh. Come on, Mike. This is a, this is a, 112? All right, so we got 112. 350, it's like the price is right. You have to get it without going over, no. <laughs> All right, so 112, 352. but hundreds and hundreds of times, and 125 times Egypt is used, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like, so, you know, it's, it becomes a formula. So as we think about Egypt, and, and why start with Egypt? So, you know, um, the Septuagint actually mixes them up and, like, puts the prophecies in order from the greatest powers and then down to the least. But, uh, you know, Jeremiah is doing it in geographical order. But also, I think, um, there's theological purpose to, as what Ronnie said, at this moment, um, and, and we've talked about in the first 45 chapters, as Babylon has been on the rise, over and over again, they've turned to Egypt. Like, I mean, we just, we're coming off chapters where they're afraid of, Babylonian response to the murder of Gedaliah. So what's their, what's their big plan? Let's go to Egypt. <laughs> um, so over and over again in the book of Jeremiah, we have seen the people of Judah, we've seen the kings of Judah um, turn to, to Egypt as the source of their succor, the source of their salvation. And in God's prophecies about the nations, he's starting with Egypt. <laughs> and he's saying, look, you know, their days are done. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's foolish to, to put your, your um, trust in chariots and in horses and in shields and in swords. And yeah, the, their army looks all uh, impressive, but 
um, it's my day, and it's my day of vengeance against them, and they will not stand in that day. So God, again, kind of thinking of, it's about Egypt, but he wants his people to know something about Egypt. That Egypt, they're not the great power that um, Judah thinks they are. They are just a nation as any other nation that is beholden to the will and purposes of the sovereign God, Yahweh. Um, that he's not just the local regional deity of Israel and Palestine and Judah, but he is the God over all nations and he brings nations down, <laughs> in the case of Egypt in this moment, and raises nations up, Babylon, for his purposes. And in this case, he's using Babylon to destroy the Egyptians. Um, and it means, um, again, like they're continuing to, to trust in them. They're tr trusting in something that is empty um, and devoid of power because it's only God who has power to, to, you know, set the course of human history. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, they're trusting in them after they've already been pushed out. So Carchemish, by the way, is, I should have, should have given you a map and, or, I'll give you a geography lesson. So it's in the north, so it's north of Israel. Um, it's on the Euphrates. It's kind of like where Syria, modern-day Syria and Turkey meet. So as you kind of think of that, Egypt's reach, in that fertile crescent, Egypt's reach has kind of gone up to the apex of that crescent, and now <laughs> Babylonians. <laughs> so in the following year, uh, the Babylonians, so the following year after Carchemish, um, the Babylonians defeat the um, Philistines at Ashkelon. Um, so they, so just a year later, they're already <laughs> um, in control of Syria, Palestine. So, so yeah, they're trusting. By putting your trust in Egypt, you're you're, it, you're trusting in forces that are already actively on retreat. <laughs> um, it's like, <laughs> to, and, and again, imagine like. Egypt has to go through Judah on their way back to Egypt. So not only does news of the battle um, uh, you know, come to Judah, they, they've seen the Egyptian, hey, guys, where are y'all going? <laughs> I thought y'all were fighting. The, the Babylonians are that way. Come on. Um, and no, no, they are in pell-mell flight. And notice how, again, mocking it's describing the swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape in the north by the river of Euphrates. They have stumbled and fallen. Their warriors are beaten down. They fled in haste. They look back, terror on every side. Like, so it's just, they go in so confidently, you know, it's like those movies where you see, like, the warriors beating their swords against their shields and, uh, let's go get them. And then... <laughs> They're pell-mell in flight. So it's, it's ridiculous. Like, again, it, it, it's, it's mocking the Egyptians uh, to, to remind Judah, why are you trusting these, these clowns? <laughs> like, they, they just got uh, massively defeated. Um, and they're, you know, so that historic massive defeat is the subject of the first poem. And then the second poem is, 
Nebuchadnezzar is going to pursue them all the way into Egypt. Like, so it's, um, you know, it's not just one loss, but it's the beginning of a pattern whereby Egypt is going to be laid waste by the Babylonians. So that message to, to Judah that keeps over and over again after this battle, well, let, let's ally with Egypt. Maybe that will save us, deliver us. Rather than turning to the God who has um, brought vengeance upon the Egyptian, uh, a God who sacrificed the Egyptian for his purposes. Yeah, and to sort of think, like, notice at the very, very end, not to jump too far ahead in our story, um, at the very end of verse 26, afterward Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old. So, like, and that's going to be a refrain through these prophecies concerning the nations. So he's, he is absolutely going into this, this very real human loss of life that the Egyptians are going to be subject to. Um, their armies defeated, what that means. In the second poem, we'll see, like, they've hired all these mercenaries, um, you know, uh, bowmen uh, from Lud and all, all these guys who've come, and they're all like, I'm out of here, I'm going home. <laughs> uh, enough with siding with the Egyptians. Um, so there, yeah, there is all kinds of uh, the fear um, that is, is running through these troops, and the fear of the Babylonians, but what um, Jeremiah wants us to put to, well, the Babylonians, they only engender fear in other people because God has raised them up. Um, so it's really the God behind the Babylonians who you should be afraid of. Um, it's that God you need to put your trust in. And again, because their temptation over and over again is to trust in Egypt, to trust in chariots and horses and the implements of war. And if a people's hearts aren't in the battle, if, and, and we know how God turns the heart, then the battle's gonna go against them. Yeah, Dave.
yeah, and nobody's worshiping Amon Ra anymore. Like, you know, like you kind of think of that. Like in Amon is his name, that Amon there at um, in verse uh, 25, I think is where he's mentioned, um, that he's, he's naming Egyptian gods and he's saying, well, I'm going to wipe the slate clean <laughs> of this. Yeah, and, and again, as you think, like, all right, why, why does he give that little kind of promise at the end? Well, you know, as we see these various nations he's going to talk about, there are going to be Christians. <laughs> there will be Christian Egyptians. There will be Christian Babylonians. Like, there will be Christian Philistines. Like, all these nations that he, he's going to list and give this little refrain, yet I'll let them come back into the land. Like, that just tiny little hope of promise there is is looking to a future where their gods aren't preeminent in those societies anymore and they've been driven out by, by the God. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, and with Nebuchadnezzar, like, again, we know Nebuchadnezzar knows about Jeremiah because we saw him singling him out in the siege, sort of saying, all right, no, you got to protect that guy. <laughs> um, but we'll see, like, later on, um, he does not have nice things. Like, this Jeremiah, who's over throughout the book, has been saying, surrender to the Babylonians. If you want to be saved, that's what you need to do. Don't resist the Babylonians. Accept the punishment of God that the Babylonian army represents. And then he's going to say, God, or God says, I'm going to punish the Babylonians for what they did to my people. <laughs> uh, it's the same thing Isaiah does with the Assyrians. Like he, he says, you know, I'm bringing the Assyrians to punish my people. And then he turns around and gives a prophecy concerning the Assyrians. Like, you took too much delight in that. No, I'm going to punish you for that. Like, you... you you um, relished in destroying my people, and, and you have to be punished for what you did to the people of God. So, you know, it's like, you know, so some people have like, you know, used that. Well, ha Jeremiah is pro-Babylonian, so he couldn't have possibly written his prophecy against Babylon. I'm like, read Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah does the exact same thing, except the nation there is Assyria. Um, and he's giving this picture of God raises nations up for his purpose. In this case, he's made, brought the Babylonians to the fore to punish the Egyptians, to punish his own people, and then they're going to be punished. Like, so they don't get a free pass for being God's instrument, um, in this case, and bringing God's purpose about. They get punished for their sins and for their own idolatrous worship. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, think of God, like, in Deuteronomy. Like, God, I'm going to wipe out the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites, the Canaanites. They're like, you don't, don't leave any survivors. Like, so they look at that, like, what kind of God is that that tells people? Um, and, like, if you think of, like, the classic dilemma, like, why, why do bad things happen? Um, so it's, the, and the answer is either God's not powerful enough to prevent them to happen, or God's not good. Like, so, like, people struggle with how can an all-powerful God be good when you see all these horrible things happen? Um, so, yeah, lots of people struggle with, with that, that idea. It, it is very much a stumbling block for people. Like, all right, you believe in a sovereign God who's, so, so why is God allowing, you know, infant children in Palestine um, to be bombed? Like, what, what kind of God do you have? And, it's a God who has, is bringing perfect judgment and his righteous anger upon people and, and working all human history for his purposes. And yeah, when you're in the middle of, of the mess, it's hard to know what's going on. Um, the image uh, that um, Puritans and C.S. Lewis used, it's like when you look at the back of a tapestry, it's a mess. <laughs> like it's, it's knots. <laughs> Uh, it's string, it, it looks a jumble. You flip it around, you see, you know, a beautiful unicorn that's, that's woven into this tapestry and it presents itself as a lovely, perfect image. And we're, it, it's sometimes hard for us to see the image. We just see the knots and the mess uh, as we're in the moment. But, but God is, is bringing about this perfect, um, this perfect product that he himself is producing. All right, let's say a little bit about um, our second prop poem, Prophecy. So the first one, um, Battle of Carchemish, the second one, as the header uh, indicates uh, in verse 13, the word of, that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. So hold on, where's my question? I have a question somewhere. Um, so yeah, so what do these verses um, from 14 um, through 24 um, tell us about God's purposes and, um, and, and the picture he presents of the Babylonians coming to Egypt? So there is, as, as Ronnie hinted at earlier, there's a lot of symbolism, uh, a lot of um, images that are presented here. Like what, what strikes you about this second poem? Concerning Egypt. <laughs> it is a joke. I'm glad you you're, you're on to that. Um, so, um, I, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's some people like the word there, um, like the noisy one, like. Flatulence. <laughs> it's a flatulence joke. <laughs> um, though the word is actually passing, <laughs> and the word pass, uh, you know, like he, so he's, here's a guy like, apologies, farting his time away <laughs> uh, is, is the joke. Um, and it's also, again, like here's a guy who speaks big, like he's noisy. Um, Arise, let us go back to our own people, or no, where's the whole bit? Prepare yourselves, um, 
uh, or hold on. Like his words earlier, I will rise and I will cover the earth. I will destroy cities in their inhabit. Like he speaks big, like he's noisy, like, but it's all like, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he's puffed himself up, but it's all like, you know, gas. It's empty air. It's like, and he, he's useless. Um, so he's, he talks himself up big. And in the end, it's just gas. <laughs> it's air that's been passed. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like, think of how the Egyptian, what's on the pharaoh's crown? Serpent, coiled serpent, ready to strike. Like, you know, that's how it's, Egypt has put themselves forward like as a, a snake there, ready to strike, terrifying. And the reality is <laughs> they're slithering away as fast as they can get out of there. Like, um, and, and again, it's the, the image that he's presenting. Like, you know, they, they think they're like, again, a, a part of Egypt's self-conception is they're a bull. You know, like they're, they're this you know, um, uh, you know, strong animal and <laughs> being driven nuts <laughs> by a fly. Um, like they think they're so like bull strong and, and they're, they're driven to distraction by, by flies <laughs> um, that, that come and, and sting them and bite them and there's nothing that the bull can, can do about it. Like so they position themselves as the coiled serpent and they end up slithering away. They position themselves as the strong bull, and they're attacked by flies and driven crazy. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what the poor cow is suffering. I've, I've been in the Mississippi Delta at 5 o'clock or sundown. <laughs> I know what this cow feels. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a reason the Mississippi Delta crop dust for mosquitoes, <laughs> um, because they're awful. Um, so I feel the bull's pain, um, or the heifer's pain. Um, but, but that's, they position themselves, they have this self-image, this boasting, um, and it's empty words, and the only real sound is as they slither away in fright from the coming of the Babylonians. Other things that strike you about this second poem. So lots of, uh, again, images, um, you know, even their, her hired servants in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand. For the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. And again, you think fattened calf is, is ready and ripe for sacrifice. And, and then the first poem, he, he described the Egyptians as God's sacrifice. And here again, we see um, that sacrifice, the nations that have allied with Egypt, they're just fattened calves, ready for the slaughter. And, and so many of them uh, say, uh, arise, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. Um, you know, they see the Babylonians coming. Um, and the Babylonians uh, are described, uh, again, uh, as, as Ronnie said, using plague language, they're more numerous with locusts. 
uh, they are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. And again, that has been Jeremiah's code phrase for Babylon the whole time, is people from the north, even though, again, they're to the east, but they sweep, sweep across that fertile crescent, so they're coming down from the north, uh, sort of completing the, the curve there. Um, and they, they go through Judah, they go through Palestine, they go all the way down into Egypt. Um, it's the extent of Babylon's power. All right, so the chapter ends, so we have all this, it's judgment upon Egypt, um, uh, I, I'm bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes, who again is Amun-Ra, uh, a, a, a god of Egypt, and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust in them. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. So it's, again, God declaring all of this is happening because he is bringing punishment upon the Egyptians. But then the chapter ends, but fear not, O Jacob, my servant. So why end, um, and uh, just a, these verses, verses 40, uh, or 27, 28, are almost exactly the same as Jeremiah 30, verses 10 and 11. So he's given us these two verses earlier, chapter 30, if you remember, was that book of consolation. So he, uh, part of Jeremiah where it's focused on um, Judah's uh, restoration to the land. So uh, it's in that book of consolation. We get some of those messianic prophecies from the book of Jeremiah, the promise of the new covenant. So why repeat those verses um, at the end of a prophecy that's focused on Egypt? So the whole chapter has all been about Egypt, yet it ends with this, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, be not dismayed, O Israel. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, and their fear is of the Babylonians. And, and God is saying, Fear not. <laughs> um, and, and again, notice like there's, there's a proximate and an ultimate. Um, it, you know, fear not. So he's been telling them in this moment, don't be afraid. But ultimately, don't be afraid. Uh, because behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. So he's, he's saying, like, okay, don't be afraid. And particularly, don't be afraid of the Babylonians. Because even when they take you into captivity, you're coming back. They're not. <laughs> you're going to last. They're not. Um, their, their, their nation is going to come to an end, but I'm going to preserve and protect and keep my people. So uh, to your point, Mike, like, don't be afraid, <laughs> um, but trust in me. Like, if you're going to be afraid, fear me. You know, put your fear and reverence in who I am, 
and what I can do because my promise is to restore you and your people to the land. Like, and that, you got to keep that in mind. So no matter what your circumstances are at the moment, keep your trust in God's working all things for good. Uh, keep your trust in this God who has pledged to protect and guide uh, and save his people. Um, and, and we'll see, like, it's prophecy here, but we see that's what comes to pass. Uh, God restores his people back to the land, and the Babylonians, they get wiped out <laughs> by the power who gets wiped out by another power who gets wiped out by another power. <laughs> like, you know, it's like that picture Daniel gives us of a, of a statue that's all just going to crumble and fall down, all these mighty kingdoms. Um, you know, you, you think they're strong, you think they're, they're the ones you should be afraid of, and they're not. They're, they're my tool to bring about my purposes. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's doing through the destruction of Jerusalem. So he's saying, look, I have to discipline you. I have to punish you. Your sin has been real. I mean, we've seen 45 chapters of idolatry <laughs> um, and uh, 45 chapters of, of Judah doing all kinds of horrible wrong things that causes God to punish them. But unlike the other nations, he's not punishing them to the full extreme. It, he's disciplining them. Um, he's He's using the discipline as the mechanism to restore them. So as he's giving these prophecies about these other nations, he's also reminding his people, you're not like them. Um, you know, we're, we're going to get next time prophecies, judgment on the Philistines, but you're not Philistines. You know, we're going to get prophet, prophecy and judgment about Moab. You're not Moab. Prophecy and judgment on Ammon, you're not Ammon. On Edom, you're not Edom. On Kedar and Hazor, you're not them. You're not Elam. You're not Syria, Damascus. You're not the Babylonians. You are my covenant people, and I will protect and restore you. I will discipline you. I will punish you for your sin because I am morally uh, right and just, says God. It has to be punished, but I will restore you. So because I'm doing it out of my discipline and love for you, and I'm not going to make a full end of you like I'm going to do to some of these other nations around you. So it's setting his people apart. Yeah, it's like picture we get in, in Revelation of like all the kings of the earth like trying to hide, like <laughs> crawling under rocks, asking the mountains to fall upon them to, to escape the judgment of God. 
Um, and at the same moment, you've got the martyrs saying, bring it on. <laughs> um, you know, let your judgment come to pass, God. Um, so, yeah, are you believing in the word of God and trusting in him, which gives you, um, you know, again, drives away fear um, in the midst of turbulence and tumult and tribulation and suffering? Are you going to trust in the God who has made promises to you in his word to sustain you through these things? Or are you going to look to every kind of human mechanism to try to escape what is in reality is inescapable? Like just as that, like, um, that, that laughable moment of like all these kings fleeing from God, trying to find some place to hide. Where are you going to hide from God? Like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, uh, you can't escape the inescapable. Um, you can't uh, find a way out from God's sovereignty. So you can either trust in that sovereign God uh, and believe in what he said um, and believe in what he's doing, or you can try to resist it by trusting in yourself, trusting in human powers, human forces, politics, war, whatever it is, uh, material possessions, like all the things we put our trust and hope in. And it's all empty, and it's all going to be brought to naught. Um, by the power of God. All right, let me uh, close our time in prayer. Gracious God, we do thank you for um, uh, who you are, the, the perfect judge um, who enacts um, righteousness on the earth, who does not let sin go unpunished, uh, but who is also a gracious God, who has taken uh, the punishment and curse that our sin uh, uh, has brought upon ourselves and place that punishment and curse upon uh, your son, Jesus, um, who, as we celebrate this season, uh, uh, took on flesh and became man, God, uh, among his people. Um, and he did that uh, for a purpose, to, to accomplish uh, a redemption that we could not accomplish for ourselves, um, to help us escape the eternal judgment that in our own power we cannot escape, but, but you, O oh God, can bring deliverance. Um, you are uh, not the God of a, a particular area or a particular people, but you are the God of all the earth and all nations. Um, and so we put our trust and hope in you, even as we see, um, and as we talked about uh, this morning, how your word goes forth. And your word is going to every uh, tribe and language and people on the earth that you're establishing your perfect kingdom. Um, and it help us to trust in that kingdom and not the kingdoms of men. Uh, help us now uh, in this coming hour to worship you and to give you all praise and honor and glory for it alone is yours. And we pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.